Revelation chapter 1, looking at verses 4 through 8 today. And if you're looking at one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 1,028. Page 1,028. And I've entitled today's message, He is Coming with the Clouds. As always, I'll begin in a word of prayer, and then we will work through the text together. So let's pray now. Our Father, we thank you for the privilege of gathering together this morning. Thank you for every grace in our lives. We thank you for the grace of salvation. Thank you for the grace of your word, for the opportunity we have to hear from your word today. Lord, as we listen to the words of today's text, might you give us understanding? Might you give us receptive hearts? Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would comfort us through the words of today's text, that he would give us courage as well. We pray that you would be glorified in this hour. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we are in the book of Revelation this morning. Last week we considered the book's prologue that was found in verses 1 through 3. And today we turn to the book's formal introduction. That's verses 4 through 8. And the first thing we find in the introduction is the name of the book's author. It's John. Of course, this is John the Apostle. And next, John identifies the book's addressees. He says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. Now, what John knew as Asia, we know as Western Turkey. And while the seven churches of Asia are not specifically identified in the introduction here, if you'll just look down at verse 11, you will find the seven churches. So this book was written to the churches of Ephesus, of Smyrna, of Pergamum, of Thyatira, of Sardis, of Philadelphia, and of Laodicea. But now, why does John the Apostle address this book to seven churches? Well, I trust you understand that the number seven carries a lot of significance in the Bible. And it is a number signifying perfection or completion. So in the book of Genesis, we read that God created the world in six days, and then he rested on the seventh day. So creation was perfect or complete. The book of Psalms says that God's word is purified seven times. That means God's word is perfect or complete. The number seven appears dozens of times in the book of Revelation, and it signifies the same thing throughout. Here, John addresses the book to seven churches. I believe these churches are meant as stand-ins for the complete church of Christ. In other words, this book, though addressed specifically to seven, is intended for all Christians in all places and at all times between the first and second coming of Christ. And why these seven churches in particular? Well, we will study these churches in detail as we get into chapters 2 and 3. And as we do that study, I think we're going to find that the triumphs and the struggles of these specific churches are really common to all churches in all times and all places. And so that's why John chose these specific churches uh, to uh, address the book to. 
They're churches that are representative of the whole body of Christ. Their triumphs are the triumphs of every church. Their struggles are the struggles of every church. And so realize that even as he had seven original addressees, the book of Revelation is a book for all of us. And friends, this should be all the motivation that we need to study the book together knowing that the contents of this book come to us from God through Christ to the Apostle John, that he's the one who wrote it down for us, and that it was written for all of us. And what book does this, uh, what, uh, does this book have to offer us? Well, let's look at John's greeting in verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace. So here's what the book of Revelation has to offer all of us. God's grace and God's peace. Grace and peace, two of the most beautiful words in the entire Bible. God's grace, referring to all the spiritual blessings that God has made available to us through Christ. And peace, one of the specific blessings of God's grace. It is spiritual tranquility which we enjoy. And so, friends, for those willing to invest the time and energy necessary to understand this book, there really are spiritual riches awaiting you. Grace and peace. And friends, these blessings will flow to you directly from the triune God. Right from the triune God to you. Look at the next verses here in the introduction. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace first from him who is and who was and who is to come. So spiritual riches available to you first from God the Father. That's who John is talking about here. John is drawing from the name of God, Yahweh, which he he introduces to us in the Old Testament. The name Yahweh means I am, or it means the one who is and was and is to come. Speaks of the fact that God is is infinite, eternal, self-existent, immutable. He always has been and he always will be. And so, friend, if you will study this book, then grace will be yours, peace will be yours, and it will flow into your soul directly from God the Father. Yahweh himself. But then John goes on. He says, Grace to you and peace from him who was and is and is to come. And then secondly, from the seven spirits or from the sevenfold spirit who is before his throne. This is a reference to God the Holy Spirit. And once again, John is drawing upon Old Testament language here. For example, in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, the Holy Spirit is described this way. He is, quote, the Spirit of the Lord, of wisdom, of understanding, of counsel, of might, of knowledge, and of the fear of the Lord. Seven attributes for the Holy Spirit. He is the seven spirits or the sevenfold spirit. John may also be referencing Zechariah chapter 4, which describes the Holy Spirit as seven lamps. And so, the Holy Spirit of God, He is the sevenfold Spirit of God. Notice the number seven appearing again. He is God's perfect Spirit, 
God's Holy Spirit. And the the text says that the Holy Spirit is before the Father's throne. This speaks of the unity of God the Father and God the Son, and also of the Holy Spirit's readiness to execute the Father's decrees. And then John goes on, Grace to you and peace from God the Father, from God the Holy Spirit, and then verse 5, and from Jesus Christ. This is God the Son, the third member of the Trinity. And friends, for the remainder of his introduction, from verse 5 all the way down through verse 8, John is going to invite us to focus our attention exclusively on the wonders of Jesus Christ, God the Son. It shouldn't be surprising to us. Central figure of the book of Revelation is the Son of God. The central theme of this book is the coming of God the Son. And so right here in the introduction, John is going to ask us to dwell upon the wonders of the Son. Consider, let's consider what John says about him. He says, grace and peace to you from God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, God the Son. But now look at all of these descriptions of the Son. First, he is the faithful witness. First thing John wants you to know about him, he's the faithful witness. This speaks to the fact that Christ is the perfect revealer of God to man. Everything that God is, Christ is. Everything that God would have us to know, Christ has made known to us. He is God's perfect revealer, his faithful witness. But then notice Christ is also the firstborn of the dead. That means Christ is the first person ever to rise from the dead, never to die again. And friends, that resurrection was the vindication that Christ is exactly who he said that he is, namely God's eternal Son and the Savior of the world. Christ is God's faithful witness. He is the firstborn from the dead. And then thirdly, you see... He is also the ruler of kings on earth. This means that that Jesus Christ, God the Son, is King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, earthly kings may think that they are the ultimate sovereigns of their kingdoms. They may think they have no one to answer to but themselves. But the scripture tells us that there is one above all of us. The Lord Jesus Christ is in heaven. He is enjoying a session at his Father's right hand even now. And he rules and reigns over this earth. All are under his sovereign control. And so, friends, this is the central figure of the book of Revelation. It is God the Son, the faithful witness of the Father, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of all the kings of the earth. What a magnificent set of descriptions for Jesus Christ. But friends, now as we continue working through the text, we find that the Apostle John gets really personal. Not only is he this exalted Lord, but Jesus Christ is also the one who loves us. Look at verse 5, second part of the verse. It says, to him who loves us. This is really interesting because most of the time when the scriptures 
emphasize the love of God. It's the Father's love for us that gets emphasized. Think John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. So it's the Father's love for us in that verse. That's usually how the Scriptures describe God's love. But, but here in the book of Revelation, it is Christ's love for us which is emphasized. And friends, John is making a really important contribution to our understanding of the Trinity here. One God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in all three members of the triune God, love us. Love is an attribute that all three persons enjoy, and it's an attribute that all three express to us. It helps us to understand the cross of Christ. You know, Jesus didn't come and die just out of obedience to his Father. He came and died because he loves us. Jesus Christ, God the Son, loves us. Friend, it's a greater love than any of us could ever comprehend. The love that you have known from your family and friends, it is nothing, nothing compared to the love of God in Christ for you. Your family's love, it's a drop. The love of God in Christ, it's an ocean. That's the difference between them. God in Christ loves you with an infinite love. And that's because He is an infinite God. And what that means practically is that God in Christ can love you as if you individually were the only person ever born and whoever will live. He can pour all the love that He has upon you in that way. And He can do the same for the person beside you and the person beside them and the person beside them. That's what infinite love means. An endless well for every last person. And His love for you is an eternal love because He is eternal. In fact, the Scriptures tell us that God in Christ loved us before the world was even made. He already knew your name. He knew your face. He had ordained every day of your life before the worlds were even fashioned. And He loved you then before you existed. And He determined that He would rescue you from your sins through Christ before you were even born. He loves you with an eternal love. Scriptures also declare that He loves with an unconditional love. Meaning that God's love for you is not based on anything lovely within you. And thank goodness for that because most of us are not particularly lovable all the time. But He loves us anyway. He loves us despite our unloveliness. And His love for us does not change as we change. It is steady. It is sure. It is forever. This is the love with which God loves you through Christ. And friend, we also see in the second part of verse 5 that, that His love for us, it's a love indeed, not just in word. Look what it says. To Him who loves us and, now here's the demonstration of His love, the chief demonstration of it, and has freed us from our sins. So He loves us with an eternal, immutable, unconditional love. And here's how it is expressed in freeing us from our sins. You know, friends, Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned 
and fallen short of the glory of God. Every last one of us. And that sin infects every part of our beings, our thinking, our feeling, our willing, our doing, the motivation behind every action. Our sin is pervasive within us. And it puts us on a trajectory toward death and hell, every single one of us. That is the state that we are all in by birth. And it is as if sin has us shackled and chained. There's no way we can release ourselves from it. The scriptures ask, can the leopard change his spots? Well, neither can we change our natures. But God in Christ has the power to change us. And so he has. In fact, the the word translated freed here, he has freed us from our sins. That that word means he has unshackled us. The idea is that he he took us bound and, and, and chained and he broke the chains open. He let us out of the prison cell. He saved us. Friends, we were condemned to death, but He released us from that fate. He freed us from both the power and the penalty of sin. Rescued us from the danger we were in of hell. He rescued us of of sin's ability to control every aspect of our lives. And what He has given us in exchange is the power to say no to our sinful natures, and to say yes to all that God would have us to be in Christ. That's what He has done for us. That's how much He loves us, that He should take us, though dead in transgressions and sins, and not owing to anything He did to us, but something we did to ourselves, to take us in that state, and to break loose the shackles, free us from the prison cell, take us off that road to hell, put us on the road to glory, and give us the power and the ability by His Spirit to say no to evil, yes to good. He did that for us in His love. And the text tells us how He did it. Look, it says He freed us from our sins by His blood, by His blood. That's a reference to the cross. My friend, here's what it took for you to be liberated from the power and penalty of your sin. God the Son had to enter into the human experience Himself, which meant He had to voluntarily leave heaven's glory for you. Think of the glory the Son of God enjoyed before He took on flesh. There in heaven, He was beyond any ability to be hurt, He could not be maligned. He could not be killed. All day, every day, he was surrounded by angels and saints being worshipped and adored. He had the love of his Father. Untouchable was he in heaven. He voluntarily gave that up, turned his back on it, as it were, so that he could robe his glory in human flesh and dwell on a sin-cursed earth where he would experience everything that we experience except not commit sin in the process. He would experience sickness, deprivation, sorrow, pain, mistreatment, all of it. He volunteered for it. And then at the end of his ministry, he would have to go to a cross and die for us. That's the ultimate reason why he took on flesh, In heaven, he could not die. Only one with flesh and blood can die. 
So he took it on so he could go to the cross for us. And there on the cross, the Son of God offered to his Father an acceptable blood sacrifice for our sins in our place. Taking the full penalty that our sins deserve and satisfying the full demands of God's justice on our behalf. Friend, that's what the cross of Christ is all about. That's what he had to do. That's what he was willing to do. And that's what he did to free us from our sin. The one who knew no sin became sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. Friends, because of him, because of his willingness to suffer and to die as a substitute, we are now no longer under the sentence of death. We are no longer enslaved to our sinful natures. We have been liberated from all of it. Friend, if that isn't amazing enough, he's done something more for us. Look at the the next verse, verse 6. It says, he's freed us from our sins by his blood and he's made us a kingdom. In this context, that means he has also taken each one of us individually as he redeems us, and he's made of us one new people. Black and white and Hispanic, old and young, rich and poor, man and woman, he's just gathered us all together as a redeemed people, made of us one new people, and he's put us under the lordship of Christ. He has transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness taken us away from the prince of darkness, and he has put us directly under his rule. And it says, and he's also made us priests to God. That is, he has made us a people capable of rendering to God acceptable worship. That's what we were made for. And that's what he has done for us. Friends, for all of these things, John says that Christ deserves our worship. Look at the second part of verse 6. He made us a kingdom... Praise to his God and Father. Now to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. This is the Son of God. He is the Father's faithful witness. He is the firstborn from the dead. He is the one who freed us from our sins through his own sacrifice on the cross. He's the one who loved us and rescued us from our terrible fate. He's the one who made us a kingdom and priest to God, and he deserves our worship for it. That's what John says. He deserves our worship for it. In fact, he deserves the collective worship of his people, and he deserves it. First thing in the morning, on the first day of the week, every single week of our lives. And that's why we gather here at Grace Baptist Church on Sunday mornings. And it's why here at Grace, we have our worship hour before we have our Sunday school hour. This is what Christ deserves. First rising in the morning of the first day of the week, we should be be praising Him in song and in prayer and in reading and studying His Word. It's what He deserves for what he has done. But then he also deserves worship from each one of us individually as we go back into our homes and as we're with our spouses and our kids and our parents, as we're at work, as we're at play. In all aspects of life, all of life should be offered in worship to God and in his service. John says that's what he is owed. 
But then as we continue reading this introduction, John tells us one more thing about Christ. It would be enough, would it not, if he had merely, merely, I say, freed us from our sins, made of us a kingdom and priests. But no, he's done something else. Verse 7, he writes, Behold, okay, and that means pay really close attention to this because this is really important and it's really stunning. Behold, on top of everything else, He's also coming back for us. He's coming back for us. And he's coming with the clouds. That means he is coming from heaven, his present abode, back down to the earth. The Lord Jesus, who lived, died, rose, and ascended back into heaven 2,000 years ago, he will return for us. Christ himself promised this during his first advent. In John 14, verses 1 and 2, he said this to his disciples. He said, in my father's house, okay, his father's house is a reference to heaven. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself. So just before our Lord's ascension back to heaven, he wanted to reassure his disciples with these words. He said, listen, I'm about to depart from you. I'm going back to heaven. That's where I started. That's where I'm going back. He said, but don't be troubled by that. Our separation will not be forever. He said, I am going there to prepare a place for you. And when the time is right, I am coming back for you. And when I come back, the first thing I'm going to do is scoop you all up, gather you up to be with me, and back to heaven we will go where we will be together. This is a promise reiterated by the angels right after Christ ascended. Acts 1, verse 11. This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go. He ascended back to heaven through the clouds. The angel said, he's coming back down through the clouds. He's coming for you one day. Also spoken by Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4, quote, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. See, friends, this Lord, God the Son, the one who lived, died, and rose again, He is coming back for us. He will leave heaven again. He will come through the clouds. He will come to earth. He will gather us up to be with Himself. And friend, this is the great hope of the church. Our hope isn't that somehow, some way, we're going to figure out how to take the levers of power in this sin-cursed world, and turn our earth into a paradise? No, that is a vain hope. Our hope is not just that we will somehow tough things out. No, our hope is that the Lord Jesus, God's faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the one who loves us, who died for us, that the one who ascended back to his Father's right hand, that this Jesus is going to come back for us. 
He's going to rescue us, that the salvation He secured at the cross will be completed in a second coming. That is the great hope of the church. And you'll also notice here this statement, He is coming with the clouds. It's in the present tense. Present tense in English, present tense in the original text. John is trying to convey here that it is already in motion. He's again reinforcing the imminency of Christ's return. He is presently now preparing to split the clouds and to come back. Could be any moment now. Could be before we finish worshiping this morning. But He is coming. And when He comes, it says, when He comes, every eye will see Him. Every eye will see Him. So, away with the doctrine of a secret rapture, which says that Christ will come, take all of His people, scoop them up, take them back to heaven, and nobody will know what happened. Nobody will see it. They won't know what, what's going on. It'll just, it'll just uh, somehow occur unnoticed, at least until after the fact. But no, this text says He is coming. He is coming with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. He is coming in the clouds, and every eye will see Him. Everybody will know who has come back and why He has come back. They will see it with their eyes. And it says, even those who pierced him will see it. Now this could be a reference either to unbelieving Israel or to everyone the world over who doesn't believe. But either way, we understand the point that all eyes will see him come back for his people and even those who had denied his existence or refused to acknowledge Jesus as Lord, even those who were utterly hostile to him, they will see him with their eyes. They will know who he is and what he is doing. And then he adds this, Every eye will see him, even those who pierce him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Now, in the book of Revelation, wailing is the response of the condemned. So Christ is going to come in power and glory. His first act will be to complete the salvation of His church, to rescue them. But immediately afterwards, it will be to condemn the world that is hardened in unbelief, to complete their judgments. What a terrible thought that is. No, friends, for some people, the Lord's return will be the best day of their lives. This is what they've been waiting for their whole life long, and it's going to happen. They're going to see the Lord Jesus in all of His glory, face to face. And Jesus will be welcoming them to come, to be in His presence. Come, let's make, you have become my people, my kingdom. Now let's realize the kingdom. Let's complete the work. It'll be the greatest day of all. To finally be freed from sin and sorrow. But for others, the coming of Jesus will be the worst day of their lives. The absolute worst. Because He is coming as their 
all-powerful foe. And His coming will mean their end. It'll mean the start of a cascading set of judgments which will not end until the lake of fire is full of those who resisted Him. My friend, our Lord Jesus is coming back. When He comes back, it's not going to be like His first coming. He's not coming back as a little baby in a manger to be spat upon and abused. He's coming back as king. And everyone will see it. And everyone will know it. And for some, it'll mean salvation. For others, it will mean judgment. A sobering thought. Now we come to the final verse of this passage. And it says, that's verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God who is and who was and is to come, the Almighty. And friends, this verse gives us the guarantee that the truths we've just considered will come to pass. Here's the guarantee. The promise of grace and peace for those who receive the words. The promise of weeping and wailing for those who don't. The promise of a coming and a kingdom. Guaranteed by God through Christ, the one who is Alpha and Omega. That's the first letter of the Greek alphabet, last letter of the Greek alphabet. It means God in Christ is the beginning and the ending of all things. And He's the one who was and is and is to come. A title we saw in verse 4, meaning He is the Eternal One. And He is the Almighty. He is the one who has the might to bring His plans to pass no matter what opposition rises against him. So, friend, what we find here in the book of Revelation is not a set of of vain hopes. No, what we have here are divine certainties. These are divine certainties. As I prepare to close now, let me simply state that we we are surely living in difficult times. For some, these have been times of great economic hardship. Between the the spiking inflation and the loss of jobs and everything else, medical emergencies that have sent the debt soaring, it's been a hard time. It's been a time of creeping statism where the heads of governments all over the world have used emergency declarations to assume new powers plenary powers over their own citizens. It's a time of sickness and death. Just even within our our little church family here, so many surgeries, so many people sick, so many loved ones lost. It's been a hard time for everyone. Of course, we understand God did not create a world that is like this one. He created a perfect paradise. This world is broken because of sin's entrance into it. But listen, my friends, God loves you. He loves you in Christ. He loves you. And in His love, He has determined that He shall reverse all of the effects of sin's curse. Pain, death, deprivation, sorrow, all of it. All of it, he intends to overturn. 
And he's going to overturn it through Christ. The work has already begun. The Great Commission has gone forth. Disciples are being made. A new citizenry is being built. A new kingdom under the headship of Christ. Sins are being forgiven. New spiritual life being granted. And friends, what has begun will be brought to completion. Our Lord Jesus is going to come again. He's going to come through the clouds of heaven. He's going to come and rescue his church. And he's going to mete out his judgments, which will mean making right every wrong. That's what that means. Fixing everything that is broken. Putting away all sin forever. Conquering death once and for all. He will make it happen. And in the meantime, he offers us his grace and peace so that we can live through these trying times with joy even as we suffer these great sorrows. This is what we have, friends, in the book of Revelation. This is what will come for all of us. God has guaranteed it to us. So, friend, can I finish with these last questions for you? First, are you trusting in God through Christ in repentant faith? If not, what is stopping you? God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever should believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. That offer is held out to all. Just repent of sin. You know it's not doing you any good anyway. Name one good thing that your besetting sin has done for you. Name one thing. Just turn your back on it. Forsake it. Repent of it. Trust in the provision that God has made for you through Christ. Just take hold of His forgiveness. Make His death your death for sins. Trust in Him. Receive the righteousness that He freely imputes to all who believe. Accept Him. Make Him your Lord. Become a part of His kingdom. There's no reason not to. There's no reason not to do it right now. You can just pray to God in your own seat right now. Confessing sin, forsaking it, declaring allegiance to Christ, and then telling me or Pastor Scott or somebody else in this church so we can help you on your next spiritual steps. But then, friend, for, for those who are already believers, are you keeping your eyes fixed on the clouds? Are you focused on Christ? And his priorities. Are, are, you, are you trying to soak up all of the spiritual riches that God has for you in the here and now? There's grace available to you now. And peace, real, true, spiritual peace that you can enjoy even in the midst of all of life's hardships. Are you taking full advantage of what God offers you now through Christ? Well, that comes primarily through the study of His Word and prayer and participation in a local church. Are you committed to these things? And then finally, are you seeking to draw near to Him every day that you might know His mercies in ever-increasing measure? Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer now. Father, we thank You for this text, just an introduction to the book of Revelation, and yet so much here. Lord, it has drawn our eyes to Christ to see who He is 
to consider His titles, to consider His works of love for us. Lord, soften our hearts toward Him. Make us lovers of Him. Help us to make His priorities our own. Help us to make Him our ruler. Help us to come under Him in every department of life. Help us to forsake our sins, Lord. Empower us by Your Spirit to say no to every base impulse and yes to every godly virtue. Shape us into Your people. Give us an expectancy for your return when the salvation begun in us will finally be complete, when your kingdom will be done, your kingdom will come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.